Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Shai Dromi, who is the author of Above the Fray, The Red Cross and the Making of the Humanitarian NGO Sector, uh, which is out this year. Um, and Shai is a lecturer in sociology at Harvard. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. No, uh, absolute pleasure. And uh, this is a great book. It's both a really interesting historical analysis of, um, I, I guess, an organization and a, a kind of phenomenon we, we take for granted every day, you know, sadly, whether it's on the news or, um, you know, giving to charity or, or whatever. But it's also a really, you know, kind of almost classic bit of, of what I'd call uh, cultural sociology. And, and I'd, I'd like to kick off there, really. If you could tell me a little bit about what what kind of cultural sociology is, what it is as a theoretical framework that you've used for this book right um well first of all thank you for the kind words about the the book um the specific type of cultural sociology that i'm using in this book um is usually referred to as the strong program in cultural sociology it's a theoretical framework that emerged first in um, ucla and then at yale and uh, moved um, to other places as well which really emphasizes the effects of uh, culture on various domains of social life, so politics, sports, academia, um, um, especially places that we wouldn't normally think of as uh, being influenced by culture. For example, the economy, uh, where if you think about it, consumption patterns uh, and types of economic decisions are absolutely uh, uh, variable based on um, based on national uh, background, based on uh, class background, and so on. So um, I'm drawing on cultural sociology in order to um, get a sense of how um, the type of organization that we know today as a humanitarian uh, NGO, non-governmental organization, came to be so dominant, so taken for granted, um, really so pervasive in uh, um, um international arenas. Uh, and I'm conjoining it with a um, concept called field from uh, Pierre Bourdieu's theory, which um, really looks at social domains where people pursue more or less the same activities and uh, compete over dominance. So this would be academia, literature, uh, government, sports, uh, where the main question is how certain ideas about what you know, qualities um become valuable, how they emerge, how they help some people succeed and keep others back within specific bounded domains. And so both of these approaches together um, help me think of humanitarianism as um, um, a field that is, uh, on the one hand, um, built of of organizations that cooperate with each other. Think of, um, you know, United Nations, um, um, various uh, aid agencies, 
the International Committee of the Red Cross, organizations like uh, Doctors Without Borders, but at the same time, they have some level of competition between them over what counts as a good humanitarian um, and uh, uh, how one might emulate the best form of uh, emergency aid. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get uh, precisely in, into that um struggle or, or contestation uh, when, when we talk yeah. about uh, comparing two, two organizations, which comes up a bit later in the book. I, I suppose the other maybe bit of like ground clearing starting point is, you know, you mentioned you've applied field theory and, and the strong program to um, humanitarian work and, you know, the particular story of, of one NGO, but, but I'm also interested in, 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 I guess what, what your sort of motivation or, or, or interest uh, is, is in, in, picking that particular empirical topic? Yeah, um, I think the humanitarian sector really provides a really interesting contradiction because on one hand, as like both of us said, humanitarian NGOs are everywhere. We hear constantly on the great work that Oxfam do and um, MSF. Um, other organizations internationally, they're getting a lot of um, funding from both UN agencies, but also individual donors. They're very well trusted internationally. And then on the other hand, both today and in, throughout history, there's been a lot of debate and questions about whether at the end of the day, having an outside volunteer uh, donation-based organization come and intervene is actually the best solution for social problems. Or is it possible that they're inadvertently causing long-term damage? Um, and you know, critics have pointed, for for example, that these organizations are um, really not accountable to the populations they serve, unlike a, a government, right? Um, that they are often uncoordinated, that they uh, might inadvertently weaken existing local states institutions that might be able to help. So given, on one hand, this like, pro- profound trust um, in organizations like uh, NGOs, and on the other hand, this um, critical debate, it struck me as interesting to, to find out how exactly this um, um, sector succeeded so well over the last 150 years, weathered um, many challenges, many internal splits, um, many outside criticisms. And this is especially important because if, if you look back, let's say 150 years ago to when the Red Cross started, there are many other ideas about what the best way to provide emergency aid are, um, including empowering states, improving states' capacities to deal with emergencies, uh, promoting disarmament, um, reducing the, the, the actual harm that warfare causes, um, and so on and so forth. So the puzzle for me is how this one type of thinking about humanitarian aid really becomes so dominant to the level that it it, it appears at least to be common sense. Which beautifully preempts my next question, which is, well, well how does it then? And, and the place to start, you, you've sort of alluded to in passing, is, you know, well, I suppose it's, you know, 
more 170 years ago, you know, if, if we're thinking about the 1850s. And you, you have, I suppose, maybe two or, or three moments in, in the historical analysis. You know, one is um, the reality of uh, war at the time and how, you know, uh, war was conducted, how uh, medicine was, was practiced. Uh, but then there's also, you know, an individual story and in some ways a kind of a literary or um, cultural communication uh, story as well. So so it'd be good to, to think through the, the roots of the Red Cross, both in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of historical situation of war, but also the social cultural uh, construction of how um, we might do humanitarian work that was developing at the time. Yeah, I think that the story really starts in the 1850s. Um, and that is not to say that humanitarian work didn't exist before. Uh, but the story of um, organized humanitarian aid, the way we, were, we think about it today, really emerged, started emerging then. So several things were going on at the time. Um, first, there was a series of uh, uh, wars throughout Central Europe. Um, the um, Italian independence wars, the um, German unif- uh, unification wars, and um, across Europe and to some extent in the United States, there was also new interest in um, um, battlefield medicine um, with physicians, uh, nurses, uh, really grappling to try and improve medical aid to the wounded. Um, <clears throat> now, this is the context in which there were very inadequate middle medical care facilities on actual battlefields, both due to few working hands, um, lack of medical knowledge, lack of supplies. So we're talking about widespread um, gangrene, uh, amputation is um, um, pretty much the the basic um, response to a a gunshot wound. Um, And we're also talking about a great deal of disorganization within militaries, around um, arranging supplies, um, uh, sending supplies to the front. So at the end of the day, soldiers who were unlucky enough to be wounded at war often ended up being left to fend for themselves on the battlefield. If they were lucky, uh, family members or or friends would actually come and and collect them from the battlefield. Uh, If not, they would often die simply due to lack of, of treatment. Um, so that's, that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, on the home front, there was an increased awareness of what was going on on the battlefield, um, partially due to uh, faster communication with the battlefield. So the telegraph was being introduced to um, um, battlefields. Photography uh, was mobilized by reporters who then started publishing um, uh, news much faster and with accompanying photograph. Uh, the Crimean War of the mid-1850s was particularly uh, uh, prominent in that regard, where um, you know, Londoners suddenly found out that um, their, their relatives, their um, uh, sons, husbands, were dying in a very, very undignified way on the battlefield. Um, so, uh, and this, this of course, created anxiety and uh, put, has put pressure on governments. Now, um, in ni- 1859, um, the, during the Battle of Solferino, 
part of the Second Italian War of Independence. Incidentally, uh, a young professional from Geneva called Henri Donant um, was traveling to the battlefield to meet Napoleon III to try to promote his business. And he arrives there in the um, battlefield right after the conclusion of the battle. So what he witnesses is basically um, the, the aftermath, the people, soldiers from both both sides of the battle wounded, um, many of them left basically without any sort of uh, treatment, without water. Um, and he's very moved. He um, And this is a relatively wealthy individual, uh, relatively resourceful. And he manages to arrange help both locally, um, call out to, um, to, to um, local uh, church organizations, um, local villagers to come and help, but also to send a, to send to Geneva to ask them to uh, send supplies. And um, he writes a book in 1862 on his experience, um, basically reconstructing both the experience on the uh, in the battlefield, in the local hospitals, what he saw there. Um, and then also he, he writes a short proposal that uh, how much things could have been better if there would be an aid society that's just available, that's just um, waiting for the next battle to occur in every major city in Europe. And then rather than being left on the battlefield, people can count on someone coming in and, um, Picking them up. Um, now this book comes out, and it's um, now it certainly wasn't the first report from the battlefield. Uh, people already knew, as I said, about the situation. But at the same time, the book did several things very successfully. Um, it both formal, like dramatized successfully a whole set of concerns that people had about the battlefield. So both the senselessness of the battlefield, of the deaths. Um, you know, every family liked to at least hope that if their their relatives die in the battle, they, they would die in some some sort of a dignified manner. Instead, Dunant was showing how undignified uh, the deaths were. People were dying without their last rites, um, in, in extreme pain. Uh, he also exposed the inefficiency of the existing uh, medical aid on the battlefield uh, showed how basically there were no working hands, uh, very little medical knowledge uh, causing great pain. So that was one. A second thing the book achieved was really uh, providing a specific um, kind of recipe, right? How can we succeed in uh, alleviating their pain and actually showing, demonstrating it through his own actions, through Dunant's own activism and, um, and, um, the battlefield and in the surrounding hospitals, um, in particular in, in treating both sides equally. So both um, um, sides of the battle were um, treated as equals when it came to uh, be, being taken to the hospital. And third, and not no less important, that um, do not manage to circulate the book very widely in social networks. So he was a very resourceful person. He... he um, Printed it out of his own, uh, at his own expense. Sent it to aristocrats all over the country, all over the, the um, continent. It was translated. 
um, uh, aristocrats read it, monarchs um, read it. He uh, traveled in person over 1862 to talk about the book, uh, received by um, um, Queen of Prussia, among others. Um, and the important thing organizationally is that it got the attention of his colleagues in Geneva, especially a jurist uh, called Gustave Moinier, who um, um, was moved enough to start thinking together with Denant about ways to realize these proposals. Um, now, over 1862, there were several unsuccessful attempts. Dunant and Moinier. Um, tried to arrange various conferences to, to promote this idea. And finally, they um, succeeded in arranging an international conference um, to convince delegates of various countries to um, support the establishment of societies that would be volunteer-based and they would be um, really oriented just to helping the wounded in war in an impartial manner. And those became the proto-humanitarian organizations um, that we know that we know today. I mean, it, it's really interesting because the book lays out, I suppose, a, a series of alternative past and futures where, you know, it, it, it's not necessary that we have volunteer organisations that are, you know, treating um, both sides equally and are essentially sort of um, almost accepting the idea that wars are going on. You know, we, we could have seen um, interventions that were much more uh, robust in, in you know, calling for, like, peace, disarmament, you know, kind of uh, what we think of now as, like, anti-war movements, but, you know, maybe isn't appropriate to, to give them that label yeah. at the time. Um, and, you know, the, the story um, you tell is, you know, of of almost, you know, a kind of uh, ironic success in terms of, you know, a later Nobel Prize, but but also uh, a slightly kind of sad and, and, and lonely death despite his uh, his campaigning work. Now, yeah. one of the things that is particularly interesting is the role of Christianity here because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he was uh, associated with the YMCA, although you know, part of his uh, the tragedy of his life was being dismissed from working with the, uh, the YMCA. Yeah. And... Um, different varieties of, of Christianity having almost kind of different takes on uh, how to deal with uh, some of the problems that are laid out in his book. Um, and the role of Christianity, you know, whether it's as uh, radical anti-war with the Quakers or, you know, a more traditional, um, I suppose, you know, kind of palatable uh, to state Christian response of things like, you know, the importance of charity and humanitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think are particularly fascinating. Um, and I guess that's the next stage in the story, isn't it, really? The, the role of, of Christianity that takes the Red Cross beyond one man's um, campaigning and, and, and makes you know the foundation of uh, both an organisation but also an international network. Yeah. Yeah, so as you say, I mean, the, the idea of having volunteers do this work was, was not natural, at all, not not taken for granted, um, and as you say, um, some some of Dunant's contemporaries, especially Quakers, but also you know um, um, pacifists, um, uh, socialist pacifists, were um, not convinced, right? And were were in fact saying, "This is not a good thing. You're going to uh, help states uh, battle wars by." 
taking away the responsibility to take care of anyone because you're going to have volunteers uh, do that work. Um, right. So instead they were saying we should, uh, we should be supporting disarmament. We should be supporting world peace. Um, but Dunant was coming from a very specific, um, tradition within Christianity. So he was coming first of all from, uh, Geneva, which back then was hardly the, you know, human rights Mecca that we know today. It was, it was, um, um, very well known for its theological, um, institutions, especially as the historical home of uh, Calvin and one of the more important uh, centers of the um, Swiss Reformation. Um, and earlier in the century, earlier in the 19th century, there was a very serious revival in uh, reformed Protestant uh, parishes in the city of Geneva, uh, especially with younger pastors looking to reinvigorate um, Reformed Protestantism um, and faith and worship um, through a movement called the Reveil, the, the Awakening, um, with the idea that Christianity should not be just confined to sermons and Sunday and just some general um, abstract set of values, but it should actually permeate all of social life, politics, um, charity, um, uh, everything um, regarding the, the polity. Um, and this movement was international. It um, struck roots in the Netherlands, um, parts of um, what would become Germany later on, parts of France. Uh, it was international. It was very influen- influential. Now, particularly important was that uh, pastors were, um, in, the, in this um, tradition were a... Um, critical of the idea that wars can actually be eradicated, um, right? So very much against this idea that um, progress can just um, uh, erase warfare uh, from human experience. And in a way, this was a more pessimistic view than the various um, pacifist movements around. Uh, Pessimistic in the sense that um, the, the ideas of wars are just almost inevitable that we should always be prepared for um, um, the next war. And and second, it, they were also critical of the idea that the state um, should be in charge of welfare um, and instead thought that you know, Christian charity was the way to solve um, public problems. So ranging from poverty, alcoholism, and also, you know, on a larger scale, um, um, wounded soldiers requiring help. And so on. Now, um, the figures we, we talked about, Henri Dunant, uh, Gustave Monnier, uh, their, their colleagues, they were born in the 20s, so in the 1820s. So they grew up in the 30s, 40s, and um, learned um, with some of these faith leaders that attended their sermons, uh, attended some of their churches, um, got some level of theological education. And um, at the same time, they were wealthy enough to actually... Um, Try to think of social initiatives that would follow up on these ideas in uh, in Geneva. So uh, you mentioned the YMCA, but Dunant and um, um, one of his um, physician colleagues were fr- were also members of an organization called the Committee Committee for the Wounded of the Evangelical Society of Geneva, which was very much doing Red Cross type work already in the um, in the fifties. 
Um, Wanie, who I mentioned, and Theodore Monoir, um, one of his, uh, another um, doctor colleague, were members of the Geneva Society for Public Welfare. Um, again, a society just interested in in um, doing a grassroots charity organiz- um, um, organizing, uh, and very much not relying on the state to to do anything um, in terms of welfare. Um, now, Wanye quickly becomes the dominant figure in um, promoting the project of the Red Cross. And he and his colleagues were indeed pushing ideas um, about humanitarianism that kind of reflected their, their theological understandings. Uh, so given that wars were not going to end anytime soon, they were um, uh, advocating for permanent aid societies rather than just... Um, um, maybe bolstering some some of the military medical facilities. Um, they were they were very adamant that these aid society needs to be independent from the state, not not um, you know working within the state's approval, of course, but not reliant on the state, not reliant on the logic of the state, not um, definitely not um, subservient to the military, um, and that they should be working universally, internationally, caring for all those in need impartially. Uh, so much of their work in the 1860s really had um, uh, a Christian um, Reformed Protestant core to them that uh, that they were pushing through this work of uh, establishing a humanitarian sector. I mean, but particularly interesting, it's not what I might think of as a, of a sort of, you know, universalist uh, project because at the same time, the Red Cross is, uh, as you show sort of through the middle of the book, it, it's quite patriotic, it's quite nationalistic, which, you know, on the one hand might seem like a contradiction, but, uh, and I know, you know, cultural sociology is wary of the term ideology, but, you know, it's using the kind of uh, the key uh, ideological framework that, you know, is crucial to understanding nation formation um, and, and European history at the time. And, and, and I think that, is maybe the other the other pillar that you know you've got on the one hand this particularly strong Christian set of principles, especially around charity, which becomes important later on in the story too. But also, you know, it, it's it's an expression of of national consciousness as much as it is a, a kind of cross European universalist project. Yeah, yeah. So, funnily enough, this was really not a um, kind of cosmopolitan boundary uh, defying uh, project, right? Uh, this was the, the Red Cross and much of the um, accompanying, you know, uh, donor base, uh, volunteer base, and so on, were very much nationally organized and um, were often envisioning the Red Cross as a curious conglomeration of, uh, on one hand, the an international spirit, you know, some sort of sense that they're working for humanity, um, but at the same time, very much a patriotic pride and um, um, an extension of, let's say, national moral um, virtues. Um, so, for example, um, Prussia, both Prussia and France had uh, uh, Red Cross societies established already in the 1860s. In 1870 and 1871, they, um, they go to war with each other. Um, 
during the war, um, uh, the, both of their Red Cross societies become very active, become very um, uh, involved in um, uh, taking care of the wounded, in uh, trying to prevent um, prevent uh, hospitals from being attacked and so on. And then uh, during the war, each Red Cross society also envisions itself as more and more um, national, as more and more reflecting the respective nations' um, kind of moral character. So right after the war, um, uh, Prussia starts uh, brandishing in France's um, face, you know, the great humanitarian efforts that they that they have, uh, their wonderful Red Cross uh, society, and actually accusing France of not being, you know, not following the spirit of the, the Red Cross project and that they weren't you know they weren't not impartial they were not uh impartial they did not respect the neutrality of uh, uh russian hospitals and so on um and we see this again and again in various different um contexts right where the, the red cross becomes somewhat of a, a symbol of each country's unique qualities um, we're also seeing national sim- national figures, you know, so Joan of Arc, for example, in France, uh, Colombia, the personification of the United States in the American Red Cross, uh, kind of come and, and you know, be very much used in uh, posters, flyers, uh, and so on to represent the Red Cross society of that specific country. Um Another interesting thing that we're seeing is actually emerging uh, nations of the time, so let's say Serbia. Bulgaria in the um, 1870s, um, the one is one of the first thing they do um, as they gain independence is establish a Red Cross society that's specifically Serbian or Bulgarian um, or even Hungary, which was still part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, insisted of having a Hungarian-speaking Red Cross um, society in Budapest. Um, Right. Um, So having a Red Cross society also um, signified for many countries the uh, an independence, uh, membership in the family of nations, and so on. And this was particularly important in the Far East. So for uh, uh, Japan and for Siam, um, having a Red Cross society uh, was also an assertion of um, equality with with the West or even uh, um, surpassing the West. Uh, incidentally, Japan, um, with the Red Cross Society, outdid their Western counterparts on, on almost all fronts uh, and became well-known both for their efficiency but also for the um, unusual um, humanity they exhibited toward wounded foreign nationals, particularly Russians, right? There would be enemies. Um, and this was, of course, then used in Japanese uh, propaganda as well as a feature of Japan's um, mercifulness, uh, uh, humanity, uh, as well as their uh, military superiority. Um, And I'll just mention that as a side effect, um, uh, within several countries, there was also domestic competition between various um, kind of uh, uh, competitors on who, which society is the most Red Cross Society, so uh, various. Uh, let's let's say, in, both in uh, England and in uh, Hungary, there were several different um, groups claiming that they are the 
the official Red Cross societies, and the, the other are copycat Red Cross societies um, for a while. And because uh, this was with the understanding that being um, the Red Cross, being humanitarian, being um, um, you know uh, the National Red Cross Society is also a source of prestige, a source of um, um, kind of represent uh, a way of representing the nation, a re- way of appealing to national governments, uh, national leadership, and, I, I, and I think so I, on. I might ask you to sort of pick up on that point uh, and bring us closer to a, a more contemporary setting. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about uh, in terms of the developments. I mean, you know, we've got the gender politics yeah. of... Uh, the Red Cross, uh, its relationships to things like nursing, charity, journalism, international law, all of which are in, are in the book. And, you know, again, as with all of my podcasting, I really urge listeners to to read the book. But that sense of, you know, competing institutions looking for the official status, I think takes on a new form uh, in, 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 you know, comparatively contemporary settings when we see the rise of uh, what you talk about is new humanitarianism, but but you give the specific example of um, MSF, you know, Medicine Frontiers, uh, as having a, a very different, seemingly, approach to the Red Cross, but also being indebted to some of the logics that you've already sketched out. Yeah. Um, so really, the, the 1970s saw an enormous split in... The international humanitarian community, uh, with uh, the organization Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, um, emerging first in France and then several other with, with several other national uh, chapters, and uh, challenging the Red Cross and saying, you know, we need to rethink how we're um, thinking about what being a good humanitarian is. And it, I think this was particularly around the issues of neutrality and impartiality, because the, the, the at least the International Committee of the Red Cross historically interpreted um, its, its you know, main role as um, being um, the aid provider who avoids conflict and treats whoever, um, whoever they can safely reach. Um, so, for example, um, in, in World War II, uh, it came under a great deal of criticism that they did not um, publicly speak out about Auschwitz and about um, uh, everything that was going on in Germany. Um, and later on, their their line of defense was, well, we needed to maintain access to the prisoners of war that we did have access to. Uh, so had we spoken out about what we knew we would have lost access to millions and millions of um, aid recipients who needed our help without any assurance that this would actually make a difference um, in terms of the concentration camps. Um, Doctors Without Borders came with pretty much the the opposite approach. So this this organization emerged in the 70s in France. Uh, It was established by doctors who worked actually for the French Red Cross and were very frustrated with um, the Red Cross's policies. Um, And their interpretation of um, uh, what it means to be a good humanitarian and to be um, impartial is actually to speak out as an impartial witness um, when when, um, witnessing uh, infringements of international humanitarian law um, state negligence, human rights abuses, and the likes. 
Um, and that this makes you, this is what a, the, the best form of humanitarianism is. Um, now, uh, within several, so they were established in 71, and within several years, they learned that they actually need to be much more cautious because um, in several occasions, the, um, when they did speak out about what they saw, they were also expelled from the sites where they worked by the local governments who were who did not want these witnesses just hanging around. Uh, but the interesting thing is that I think it has, as I show in the book in detail, um, there really is no split with the Red Cross's ideals about what role um, humanitarians play in the world, right? That they should be neutral, that they should be independent, that they should be um, impartial in whatever way you you interpret that. In fact, the opposite. Uh, the, the, the question becomes how, who best emulates those uh, Red Cross ideals that, you know, have been in existence for a century back then, um, and who does them? Who does them best? So um, there's an interesting continuity between uh, the thinking of Dunant, Moinier, and the thinking of those um, figures who founded Dutchers Without Borders a hundred years later. Now, usually, I ask, "So, what are you working on next?" <laughs> to, to my authors, but um, given that the book is like literally half the press, uh, it was published. Uh, I guess, you know, second week, third week in January uh, of, of 2020. Um, I, I think a more interesting question, and this picks up directly on the um, continuities you've sketched out between um, MSF and, and Red Cross, it, it, it is a question about what do you think cultural sociology sort of um, offers, I guess, our contemporary mm-hmm. uh, humanitarian NGOs and, you know, people making policy, maybe people, you know, seeing the Red Cross adverts on television, you, you know, th- this um, absolutely brilliant uh, academic analysis that, you know, shows us the continuities and, and the changes uh, over time. What, what, what you kind of hope in the impact of it uh, might be on our, on our contemporary world? Uh, so, you know, I think there are two main takeaways for uh, humanitarian organizations. There's their, their um, supporters um, that we should really consider. So one, I think the book shows um, that religion has served um, a public good historically in creating the sector and shaping it, um, in mobilizing populations to join it. Um, but um, existing literature has also shown that uh, many humanitarian organizations do not work with uh, faith-based organizations and um or at the very least treat them with uh with great suspicion uh that they might not really be impartial uh they might somehow have some underlying motive to evangelize and so on um when you know in fact in many parts of the world um uh, religious organizations are the first responders so puerto rico um, after Hurricane Maria a couple of years ago, um, um, you know, when, had a, a massive failure of uh, some of the, the um, national um, aid organizations, but at the same time, local churches were the ones who were both able to provide the help um, in real time and to actually form connections to mainland United States and bring supplies from there. So um, um, 
I think in, in contrast, sometimes when you look at um, um, press releases, uh, mission statements, and so on of existing organizations and interviews with um, um, some of their officers, we're seeing religion treated as uh, primarily a cause for conflict. So part of the one of the issues that the, organi- the aid organization should uh, address rather than a source of um, good. Um, so, and, and keeping in mind that aid, organ, aid organizations often serve communities that are um, deeply religious uh, themselves. Um, one of the takeaways here is that we should really reconsider how we think about religion in um, the humanitarian community and that maybe drawing such severe lines between um, self-described secular uh, aid organization and faith-based aid organization is not necessarily uh, uh, the best policy. Um, I think a second, kind of more general takeaway is that um, the book shows that the way we think today about addressing humanitarian emergencies is really one out of several ideas that have have been around historically and we we've we've talked about peacemaking uh before actually peacemaking is um um one of the harder causes to to raise funds for compared to um human, humanitarian aid to to emergency humanitarian aid um and where i think the book shows that in many ways there were other ways that the the um history of humanitarian aid could have gone um, and I think understanding that, you know, volunteer-based, donation-based NGOs are just one option, and we should consider uh, positively, um, you know, things like human rights interventions early on, um, um, c- civil society organization um, uh, intervention in peacemaking um, early on could actually be viable either alternatives or at least uh, complementaries to the way we conduct humanitarianism today. So these are the the two main takeaways, I think, um, um, the, the cultural sociology in this book can offer.